Hey, welcome to the Rungi FBC Sermon Podcast. I'm really excited to see that you're seeking the Lord with your time and pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Before you listen, however, I just want to issue out a disclaimer. If at any point during this message you feel like you need to work for God's approval and salvation, stop and instead remember that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Always keep that in mind and you will be ready to receive from the Lord. Today we're going to examine the book of Hebrews chapter 9 and we're going to see how Jesus fulfilled the things that needed to be fulfilled in order that we might stand before God. So I want to ask you to turn your Bible to Hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 through 14. Today's message is entitled, King of the Mountain. Do you ever find yourself going through the motions? Every church seems to have its own traditions and idiosyncrasies, the things that are unique to them. Uh, things that, that typically people can fall into doing without realizing they're doing it. and Maybe we've done it so long that you know we just go on autopilot. For example, some churches say the Lord's Prayer every Sunday, and sometimes it can lose its meaning. Some churches uh, have specific times to sit and to stand, and people don't know why they do it. Uh, some churches have responsive readings and special music and asked why, because we've always done it this way. I was a part of a church who regularly sang the doxology at the end of the ever service. If you don't know what the doxology is, it's praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And everybody would go, Amen. And you know, for somebody that's never experienced that before, that might seem a little religious and strange. Every church has something that is unique to them, something that makes them them. Although we all have faith in Jesus Christ, we're all a little different in different ways. It reminds me of a story I heard. Two boys that grew up together were the best of friends six days a week, but on Sundays they didn't see each other because one was Catholic and the other was Baptist. But in an effort to grow their relationships, their parents insisted they go to church with each other and learn about each other's denominations. And so the Baptist boy went to the Catholic service, and he saw a lot of things that seemed strange to him, from sitting and standing at a certain time, to responsive readings, to waving incense, to, to confession, and uh, to taking the Lord's Supper in a way that was foreign to him. Every single time the, the Baptist boy saw something that was strange to him, he'd ask his Catholic friend, what does that mean? What does that mean? And his friend would explain the meaning behind it. This is why we do that. And so the next week, the Catholic boy came to the Baptist church, and he, he was confused by a lot of things. For example, he'd never really seen a bulletin before. I didn't um, you know, understand the way that they worshipped. It was very strange to him. didn't understand why they did that. And, and the way that they took offering, they didn't do it that way in his church. So he kept asking him, what does this mean? What does this mean? And, and so his friend was explaining to him. And then the pastor got up, and he took off his watch, and he wound it up, and he held it up, made sure it matched the clock on the back wall, and he put it on the pulpit in front of him. And so the Catholic boy asked his Baptist friend, well, what does that mean? And the Baptist boy looked at him and said, not a thing. <laughs> we all have quirks in our service. Sometimes things mean something, and sometimes we don't need to read too much into it. However, sometimes the things that we do carry significant weight and value in a church service. And in today's culture, you might hear people say things like, well, I'm not all about religion, I'm all about relationship, or I'm not a religious person, but I follow Christ. Um, and I think what they're trying to say is that they're not completely sold out on all of the religious idiosyncrasies, the traditions that churches do, and they don't really feel like that's necessary to their faith. You might even hear somebody say, 
Jesus hates religion. In fact, there's a real popular book written out uh, with that title. Uh, and, and basically, uh, it, it just talks about how Jesus does away with religious things, the doing um, of, of things to make sure that we're close to God. However, when you think about it, it doesn't really make much sense that God would hate religion. Because if Jesus hated religion, excuse me, Jesus hates religion, because if Jesus hated religion, isn't he God? And doesn't scripture teach us that God gave Moses the religious practices? And if so, why do people want to distance themselves from religion today in favor of a relationship? Uh, there's a push in our culture to erase all tradition and heritage from a church and rewrite Christianity to be what we want it to be. Or more accurately, whatever is culturally correct. Or what we feel is culturally relevant. In the past, I will admit, I, I have been on this abandon all religion and just have a relationship bandwagon. However, the more I study scripture, the more I begin to discover that there are things that many would consider to be religion that are crucial to our faith. In other words, some things are considered religious, but God approves of them and even encourages us to do that. The question is, does Jesus really hate religion? And I would like to say, no, Jesus doesn't hate religion. Jesus hates empty religion. Jesus hates religious things that have no meaning, or worse, religion that keeps us at God's uh, or at arm's reach from God, or keeps God at arm's reach from us. Jesus hates religious practice that is done outside of a relationship with Him. Of course, the go-to argument is, well, Jesus was always at odds with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were religious, thus Jesus hates religion. It is true that Jesus was at odds with the Pharisees, but think about who gave them the things that they practiced. According to the book of Exodus, most of the religious practices that the Jews practiced were um, given to them by God himself. So does it make much sense that we would say God hated something that he gave them? For example, did Jesus have a problem with tithing? Well, in Matthew 23, 23, we see, he says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. In other words, they were so adamant at sticking to the religious practice of tithing that they would count out their grain and tenth a tithe, of, uh, tithe a tenth of it to God. And Jesus wasn't, didn't have a problem with the fact that they tithed. What he had a problem was is they neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And he says in this verse, you should have done the former. In other words, you should have done the religious thing in tithing without neglecting the latter. Sometimes religion gets in the way, true, but that doesn't mean that religion is the problem. Last week we talked about how God gave the Israelites a system of worship. And as we read in the book of Hebrews, things had to change. That God gave them a new covenant. Not that the system was broken, but because people are broken, God decided to change things. In fact, God set that up that led to the new covenant or the New Testament, and he always had that in mind. Jesus doesn't hate the system. He hates the brokenness in people, which is what the system was originally set up to address. Jesus hates it when we simply go through the motions. Or the things that we do don't lead us to a relationship with him. In other words, Jesus said, uh, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Matthew 15, 8. 
There is a line where religion becomes the means to keep someone from a genuine relationship with the Lord. And we see this all the time. I mean, I was a part of this myself. I was a kid who grew up in church who thought there was, that I knew everything there was to know about God because I had become accustomed to the religious practice without becoming accustomed with the one who gave the religious practice. Jesus didn't abolish religion. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think, I want to show you why Jewish practice was so necessary. I want to show you how the author of Hebrews explains that Jesus fulfilled these things. And I also want to show uh, that, that some of the heavily religious things that we do today are critical to our relationship with him. So I want to ask you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to look at verses 1 through 14 this morning. Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 14. This is what it says. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the, and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim, glory overshadowing uh, the mercy seat. But these things we cannot now speak in detail. Um, if you know church history, you know that uh, the Ark of the Covenant was taken uh, from the Jews in the Babylonian captivity and they never got it back. So that's why he says that. In verse 6 he says, now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second one, so excuse me, but into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way the holy, holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time, Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices were offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and by various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all having obtained the eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of the heifer sprinkling on those who have been defiled in the sanctuary for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray. Father God, we come to you now, and um, we just we thank you, God, for this opportunity for us to come together and study your word. And God, I just ask that you would show us how Jesus fulfills religion, and that God, all we have to do is to trust in him. We pray that, um, that you would just examine our hearts, and God, if there's something that we're reserving from you, if there's an area of pride or self-righteousness that we have in our hearts, God, I, I pray that you would just eradicate that from us and help us to see how we might stand in your presence as holy and without blemish. Father, we love you and just ask God that you use your word to examine our hearts and Father, just uh, to mention the tabernacle or the bronze where the animals were being sacrificed and the bronze basin where the ceremonial washing was done. And I think the reason he does this is because he's just focusing inside the tent of meaning. But these two things have significance too. 
when God created the world, he created man and woman and he put them in the garden. And the Bible tells us that God worked with them and walked with them in the cool of the evening. Uh, Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect fellowship with God. And yet God told them from any tree in the garden they could eat, but he says in verse uh, chapter Genesis chapter 2 verses 17 he says but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you should not eat for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die now when we typically look at that verse we say oh well god was right now because sin has entered the world we are subject to death and decay however we see a different explanation or a different um, uh, view into that verse in the book of exodus before we go there keep in mind what happened immediately before god expelled them from the garden we see in Genesis 3.21 that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Where did he get the skin from? He got it from an animal. Well, where did he get that animal? He killed an animal on their behalf. And so this was the grace of God that they were not killed immediately. In other words, in order that they might be spared, something else had to die. God gave them grace by killing an animal on their behalf. And we'll get to that a little bit more more detail a little later on. In the book of Exodus, God issues out instructions on several occasions what the Israelite people must do in order to stand in his presence or they will surely die. When God gave instruction to Moses to go tell Pharaoh to let his people go from the burning bush, he told Moses to go and get them and bring them back to Mount Sinai saying, Certainly I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you, that you have brought the people out of Egypt, and they shall come back and worship God at this mountain. And so God chose the Israelites and his people, as, as his people, and he decided that he would reside with them. And so God gave Moses precise instructions on how to build a tabernacle, and he told him what to put in it and what those things should be made out of and where to place these objects so that he could reside with his people. You see, God has always been intentional about, about being with us. That's why he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. It's why he told Moses to construct the tabernacle. And as we will see, it is why he sent Christ with us. Now, in the tabernacle model, there were three separate locations. You had the outer courts, the holy place, and the Holy of Holies. Now, several scholars have noted the distinct similarities between the tabernacle model and the Mount Sinai and suggest the tabernacle model was based off of the pattern of the mountain. For example, the outer courtyard would be the equivalent of the valley courtyard at Mount Sinai. This was the furthest the Israelite people would be allowed to go. Then you had the holy place, uh, which, had, which could be the mountain slope, um, in Exodus chapter 24, verse 1, God tells Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, which were uh, Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel, that you should worship at a distance. So they were allowed halfway up the mountain to the mountain slope. And he says in uh, chapter 24, verse 2, Moses alone, however, shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. So that represented the Holy of Holies, the mountaintop where only the high priest was allowed to go. Now, access to God was restricted for their sake, not for God's sake. For if they tried to approach God without proper cleansing, without being prepared in a certain way, they would be struck down. But because God decided not to limit himself to one location, it makes sense how he gave Moses instruction on how to have a mountaintop experience wherever they would go. And the symbols used in the tabernacle were not without meaning. 
I want to talk about these symbols this morning and talk about the significance of them in Christ. First and foremost, I know it's not mentioned in the book of Hebrews here, chapter 9, but it is mentioned in the book of Exodus. We saw uh, the tabernacle had three basic sections. You had the outer court, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. And in the outer court laid the, the, the bronze altar. Although it's not mentioned in today's text, this is one of the key elements of the tabernacle. It was uh, upon the bronze altar that animals were sacrificed to atone for the sins of God's people. Scripture tells us that it was made from bronze and that it was square, about seven and a half feet on each side and about four feet tall. Now, bronze was often used in Scripture as a symbol of God's righteousness. For example, when the people complained against Moses, God sent venomous snakes. And the people who were bit, they were told to look upon the bronze serpent that was lifted up on a pole. In other words, look to the righteousness of God. This is how we should be. We shouldn't be complaining about Moses and God. We should be looking to God's righteousness. So bronze is often used as a symbol of God's righteousness. Now the priesthood was instructed to have a fire burning in the bronze altar that was never to be extinguished. For a sacrifice must always be available to give atonement for the people. Now this obviously points to Jesus in that he is the sacrificial, sacrificial lamb who was slain so that the atonement might be made for us and that we might have fellowship with God. John the Baptist said in John 1.29, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, of course, the primary difference between the sacrifice of Jesus and the sacrifice here made in the in the tabernacle is the author. Excuse me, as the author of Hebrews says in today's passage, Jesus's sacrifice was final once for all. You don't have to keep making it. Also, in the outer court was the bronze basin. Now, uh, this stood between the bronze altar where the sacrifices were being made and the holy place where God was. So in Exodus 30, 20, it says, When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water, so that they will not die. God wanted his people to understand the importance of purity. Anything that was not considered pure by God was destroyed. This is why we can't stand in God's presence. We're not pure anymore. Sin has entered the world. We were born into sin. Thus, the significance of the bronze basin is that... This is the last thing the priest encountered before entering the tent of meeting. Before entering God's presence, one must be cleansed. Now, this should bring some clarity on why, uh, you know, Jesus' words uh, of Peter to Peter on the last at the Last Supper. He says in John thirteen eight, "If you do not, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me." So next we see, um, you know, so you see the bronze altar, but we also see the golden lampstand. As we're getting in today's passage of scripture in the book of Hebrews, he brings this up. We see the golden lampstand. Now, God is precise in instructing Moses how this object should look, what it should be made out of, and where it should sit in the tabernacle. It should be made of pure gold, gold that is tested by fire with all of its impurities melted away. It was considered to be a sinless object. Um, and it was to be fashioned like a tree with branches on each side. And at the top of each branch, Moses was instructed that it should be shaped like the budding of an almond tree. Now, why an almond tree? Well, um, an almond tree is the first tree to blossom each year, which is usually in February. The almond is the first fruits of the season. Now, it's also significant that Aaron, who was put in charge of, of caring for this, he and his sons, that he had a staff that was placed, as we see in the book of Hebrews, it was placed inside the Ark of the Covenant because God's power caused it to bud and produce almonds. 
The Apostle Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection since he was the first to defeat death and we will be like him. Um, so Aaron and his sons had the responsibility of caring for this golden lampstand to ensure that it was always burning, always giving light in the tent of meeting. John 1.9 says that Jesus was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. So Jesus said that the church was the light of the world, Matthew 5, verse 14. See, God takes us out of darkness, and he causes light to shine on us and through us, that we are the ones who are given light to the world because we have the gospel that Jesus has come to atone for our sins. He is the one that has given light to the world. He said it this way in uh, John chapter 3, verse 18. He says, this is the verdict, light has come to the world, but men love darkness because their deeds were evil. And so uh, God has taken us out of darkness, and he causes us to shine the light that he has given us in the world. So we also see, um, aside from the golden lampstand, we see the bread of the presence, excuse me, the bread of presence sitting upon the golden table. Now this is also known as the show bread. In Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 7, we see that this bread was made to be made out of fine flour. It was to be formed in 12 loaves and arranged in two piles. And it was to be covered with frankincense, which is, um, if you don't know, it's dried tree sap. Now, it's important to note that only Aaron and his sons could enter into the holy place and eat this bread when it was set out every Sabbath day. Now, do you remember when in Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 23 through 28, Jesus' disciples were picking heads of grain and popping them into their mouths on the Sabbath? And the Pharisees jumped all over Jesus, and they jumped on Jesus' disciples that they were breaking the Sabbath, and this wasn't right. Do you remember the story that Jesus told them to defend his disciples. Mark chapter 2, listen to this, uh, verses 23 through 27. It says, And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing this that is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was not made for man. Or excuse me, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So if you listen to that, what he's saying is, there are 12 tribes of Israel, 12 loaves of bread. The high priests were supposed to be taking that. Now there's 12 disciples to eat the bread. It's almost as if Jesus was telling them that these 12 disciples were fulfilling the responsibility of the high priest because they were going to feast on him. For as he says at the Last Supper, this bread is my body. The symbolism of the bread isn't hard to identify. Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never, never go hungry. So much like the priests were the ones who ushered in the people to have a relationship with God, that's the same thing that happened with disciples. Isn't that interesting? The bread of the presence sitting upon the golden table had significance. It had meaning. Next, we see the altar of incense. Now, this was similar in construction to the bronze altar, except smaller, and it's made of gold. So it's, it's not as wide around, but it sits taller. 
Uh, in Exodus chapter 30, verse 7 through 8, Aaron was instructed to burn incense on the altar each morning and each evening. Now, in Scripture, incense is often associated with prayer. For example, Psalm 114.2, May my prayer be set before you like incense. In Revelation 5.8, the apostle John sees 24 elders standing before the throne of God, each one holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which he says are the prayers of the saints. Now, the symbolism here is that our prayers ascend to God like sweet-smelling smoke that is ascended to the heaven, or ascended to the ceiling of the tabernacle in the incense. The fact that the instruction was given to make sure incense was always burning is not without symbolism since we are given instruction in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing. Well, how does this relate to Christ? Well, we learned in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, that Christ intercedes with the Father on our behalf. In other words, he takes our prayers and he hands them to the Father. Now, I hope it gives you comfort to know that God never tires of hearing our prayers. Even when it feels like what we're praying is an insignificant prayer to be lifting to God. It is a sweet-smelling incense to him. And Christ intercedes on our behalf. So I thought that was really cool. Altar of incense, it too has meaning. The next symbol we see is the veil in the temple. And to be more accurate, there are two veils, one that separates the holy place from the outer court and one that separates them both from the holy of holies. Now, these veils were crafted out of fine linen, uh, uh, blue, purple, and red wool, and the inner veil was different from the outer one in that it had the cherubim, excuse me, the cherubim embroidered on it, and, and I'll get to that in just a second while that was there. The temple veil was also known as the curtain of testimony or the curtain of mercy. Now, in order for God to be with man and man not to die, separation was necessary. We had to look at God through a veil. Now, this, of course, points to the provision made to us, made for us by Jesus Christ. Only a high priest could enter the Holy of Holies and commune with God once a year on the Day of Atonement. Yet, when Christ was crucified, we see in Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 through 51, that the veil was torn from top to bottom, meaning Christ entered into the Holy of Holies, and that in Christ, we enter into a priesthood of all believers. There is no longer a necessary separation between God and man. We can all enter in and have fellowship with our God. Finally, we see the Ark of the Covenant. And this is probably the most familiar object to us, thanks to Harrison Ford's part in the Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark. God made a covenant that was conditional with the children of Israel. If they obeyed his laws... He would be their God, and they could live. When well, the book of Hebrews, the author mentions in verse 4, what is inside the Ark of the Covenant? We see that we see a golden jar, which is manna, or bread from heaven, Jesus. We see Aaron's staff that budded with the first fruits, Jesus. And we see the Ten Commandments, which Jesus perfectly fulfilled. The symbolism here is not without meaning. The most important part of the Ark of the Covenant was what was on top, and it's known as the mercy seat. Atop the ark were two golden cherubims with wings touching. Now, a cherubim, think about this, was the only image that God ever allowed image to craft regarding religious life. The cherubim was the symbol of mercy, which is why it was on the veil. Now, why is the cherubim associated with mercy? Because the cherubim were what guarded the entrance to the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were expelled from us. 
Scripture tells us there was a flaming sword and cherubims that kept man out. Now, that doesn't sound very merciful until you realize that the cherubims were the only thing standing between man and the wrath of God. Now, as I said earlier, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle sacrificial, uh, the blood of the sacrificial lamb upon the mercy seat of the ark. Let's read once again Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. This is what it says. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of the creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For at the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer, sprinkling of those who had been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What he's saying in his passages is that this religious practice made men clean on the outside. But because of what Christ has done once and for all, not only are we clean on the outside, our consciences and everything that's inside of us is cleansed so that we can move from dead works and into obedience to God, that we can serve the living God. Christ entered into the Holy of Holies and fulfilled the perfect sacrifice in order that we could have communion with God. Now, I know it's a popular sentiment to express that we should abandon all the religion and just have the relationship. However, we have to see that it is because of the religion that we were able to have the relationship in the first place. Jesus doesn't hate religion. Jesus hates religion that is empty and doesn't lead us to him. Now, in the book of Exodus chapter 40, verses 2 through 7, Moses is given specific instructions on how each one of these objects should be placed in the tabernacle. And someone aptly pointed out that each of these things are placed in the symbol of a cross. Now, this, I think, solidifies my point that God always intended on pointing us to Jesus Christ. Religion is not the means by which we can meet with God. We don't need to enter into empty religion where Jesus would say of us, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And this is what I would say Judaism is today. It's not leading us to Christ to have fellowship with God. There is no sacrifice being made for man. I don't know why anybody would say that they're a Jew today. There is no atonement being made for your sins outside of Christ. So we have to see that religion is not, it shouldn't, we shouldn't be led to an empty religion. However, we have to see that the beauty of religion is that Jesus does it on our behalf so that we could be made right with God. He is our perfect sacrifice, the one who made atonement for our sins. He is the one who cleanses us so that we can made be, be made pure before God. He is the one who brought light into our darkness, enlightening us to shine in the world. He is our bread, the one who gives us sustenance so we will never go hungry again. He is the one who tore the veil so that we could enter into the presence of God. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the one by which mercy rested and grace was given. Jesus doesn't hate religion. Jesus is the means of religion so that we can have fellowship with God. We hate the idea of religion because we think it clashes with grace, and I'm telling you, it doesn't. James said true and false religion is this in James 1.27. 
to care for orphans and widows in their time of need, and to keep ourselves from being tainted by the world. Because of Christ, we are not only cleansed on the outside, we are cleansed on the inside, and we have the ability to stand before a perfect and holy God. He makes our conscience clean, removing dead works, and allowing us to serve the living God. Keep in mind, the whole purpose of this was not just so that God could meet with us, but that we could serve alongside God. We could walk with Him daily. Because of Him, we can have pure hearts and fellowship with our God once again, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. The Lord wants to walk with us. The question is, has your religion been fulfilled by the king of the mountain? Or are you still separated from a living God and just going through the motions? Well, I hope this message has been an encouragement to you and that you have a renewed purpose and dedication to trust in the Lord and serve Him. Please feel free to download our church app so that you never miss another message by searching FBC Rungi in the Apple App Store or Google Play. We at Rungi First Baptist Church are here to take root, grow, and bear fruit. So if you'd like to join with us in our mission, then let's get out there and bring glory to God.